right, well, there's this um, joke I came across that I thought was kind of uh, suiting for this morning. Uh, there were three pastors who went to a uh, pastor's convention, and uh, they were sharing a room together. And uh, while in the room, uh, they were watching some, uh, some TV and eating some snacks, and all of a sudden, one piped up and said, Hey, guys, let's confess our secret sins with one another. Because, you know, that's what pastors do when they're alone for a while. They just end up confessing their secret sins. And so they, they all consented. And this guy needed to get something off his chest. Is He's like, um, I actually, I don't take a lot of time to pray. That's embarrassing because my church thinks that I'm a prayer warrior. And uh, the other pastor was shaking his head. He said, yeah, I also have to confess. I absolutely despise uh, work like making sermons and stuff. To tell you the truth, I actually copy and paste sermons from, from Google. I just take them right offline. And so then the other pastor piped up and he said, guys, I have to confess that, that my secret sin is gossiping and oh boy, I can't wait to get out of this room. <laughs> Sins come in all different shapes and, and sizes but they are all the same at their core. Uh, they, they all act as defiance towards God. They, they all destroy in the end. And, and it's selfishly motivated and replaces God with something else. We're going through a series right now that explores what we as a church believe. And uh, we won't be going through all of our uh, confessions of faith because there are quite a few of them. But uh, Pastor Ike and I were talking about possibly doing this uh, next year. And just because it's helpful for you to know exactly what we believe as a church on certain issues. Uh, the core ones, at least. Today, I'm going to be talking about what we as a church believe about sin. Now, I've named my sermon the City of Sin because I believe that sin isn't just a personal problem. It's not just a personal issue. Sin affects us corporately. All of humanity affects us all. It's a corporate problem. We are all citizens of this city, but you have a choice whether or not to make it your home. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. There's something else in nature that, that is similar to sin. It's a virus. A virus spreads, and, it, and it's relentless. Sin is a virus that is spread throughout all of humanity, and it started in the Garden of Eden. This virus has no cure. A virus that poses imminent death. A death Jesus experienced and he conquered 2,000 years ago for every single person that has, is, and will be alive. A victory we can claim as our own if we make Jesus our boss, our supreme authority, our savior. I'm going to read our church's official belief in terms of sin, and it goes like this. We believe that sin is a rejection of God's rule, beginning with rebellion of Satan and followed by Adam and Eve's deliberate choice to disobey God. Because of sin, everyone has fallen short of God's will, 
creating a conflict with God himself and others. The penalty for sin is physical and spiritual death. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you so much for grace, because without it, we would be completely lost. But you chose to love us, and uh, God, let that just sink in. Amidst our sin, amidst our ugliness, amidst our shortfalls, you chose to love us. You chose to not give up, and we are eternally grateful. God, may that just be the theme of our um, attitudes this morning. We pray that your word would just sink in and that the sin in our lives would reveal itself and allow us to cover it with the blood of Jesus so that we can experience forgiveness, so we can experience your, your victory. In your name we pray. Amen. Unfortunately, sin is being discussed less and less and less and less throughout our Christian communities. And let's just be honest. Talking about sin is not fun. As a matter of fact, it's a mood killer. You're not going to go to a, a party and sit down at the table and laugh and all of a sudden someone brings up sin. Oh, yeah. Sin. Uh, it's... You know, preaching on freedom, grace, unconditional love, and, and all that stuff. It's way more fun to talk about that stuff than it is to talk about sin. Now, there are many reasons why Christian communities have chosen to kind of nix this topic from their um, studies and sermons. But quite frankly, it's a, at its core, it's an ugly reminder of our irreversible state. It can make people feel bad, guilty, convicted. Over time, people have become more and more complacent with the view of sin as we've discussed it less and less and less. Jesus calls this complacency, this numbness, he calls it being lukewarm. And you can read about it in Revelations chapter 2. Sin is fading, not just from our churches. As it fades from our churches, it fades from our society. Our churches um, affect society, whether we like it or not. When it took law class in high school, I had to learn the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is still embedded in our, in our law system in our country. We still adhere to biblical rules. Even atheists do. They don't have a choice because it's the law. People are becoming more and more, they're believing in what's called subjective moral reasoning. And this is just a fancy way of saying that people are basically born good without God. That everyone is born with a certain preset system of ethics, an idea of what right and wrong is, a set of moral judgments. But this is simply not true. It claims that there is no such thing as sin. And this is what's being taught in our school systems. Now, I've done some research, and I know it goes way further than this. I know that the core of it uh, begins with Satan, but I think that a lot of what we believe today and in, in the atmosphere in our society can be rooted mainly in um, the Industrial Revolution. Now, you may be thinking, what in the world um, has sin got to do with the Industrial Revolution? And I will get that to that very shortly. The Industrial Revolution happened uh, between the uh, times of 1716 to sometime between the 1820s and 1840s, okay? Everything was changing fast. 
Um, things are becoming more urban, and things are becoming more industrialized. People were leaving the farms, and they were working in factories. It was the time of inventions. It was the time of ideas. It was the perfect atmosphere for someone to pop on the scene and solidify um, the theory of evolution, which was Charles Darwin, when he wrote the book, The Origin of the Species. It gave a scientific explanation to the origins of life and that we did not need God in order to explain those things. Suddenly, people now had a reason to believe that everything could have evolved from natural selection instead of being created by a loving, law-giving, graceful God. This is huge. There's no need for God. This changed everything. Philosophers, economists, historians, writers took on this worldview, and it gave way to people like Karl Marx. Karl Marx is the guy who invented this idea of communism. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, and I personally read letters that him and Charles Darwin uh, wrote to each other. They were good friends. They shared the same philosophy. Will, William Durant um, was a, an American writer, historian, and philosopher. Uh, he's also known as the reluctant atheist. He said, the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism, not Europe versus America, not even the East versus the West. It is whether men can live without God, without sin. Think about that. This is not me. This is not from the Bible. This is an atheist, a person who is very intelligent, a person who is being cited by atheists around the world. This is the conclusion that he came to through all of his studies. There's another man that uh, is, is notable coming out of this era. His name is Friedrich uh, Nietzsche. Um, he was a German philosopher, a cultural critic, poet, composer, and Latin and Greek scholar. Um, his belief was that God would become irrelevant and that universal absolute truth was completely man-made. We made that up. He predicted that if this worldview held that God was dead, that he was irrelevant, that the 20th century, the 1900s, would, be the most, would have more bloodshed than all the other 19 centuries put together in that universal madness would break out. And he was dead on. The statistics do not lie. More people died in that hundred years than all other 19 put together. He spent the last 11 years of his life mentally insane. Mortimer Adler, he is an American philosopher, educator, and popular author. He said this. He says, more consequences for life and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than any other basic question. What does this mean? It means that the actions in life of a person who believes in God, a person who believes in sin, has to be drastically different than a person who does not. Believing in sin, understanding the seriousness of its consequences, and more importantly, how it hurts our creator should drastically change the way that we act, speak, feel, think about the world around us. 
Romans chapter 12, 2 says, describes it as this. It says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to be thinking completely different. Anyone who does not believe in God and does not believe in sin and still has morals, and absolutely it is possible to, to reject God, to reject sin, and still live a, a, a basically ethical uh, life of morality, but you have to question, where did those morals come from? Secular non-Christian philosophers, journalists, uh, writers, and historians are all saying that there are huge ramifications when, a per when people start to believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that there's no sin, that there's no celestial law, and there's no moral uh, giver to uh, humanity, and no sin to be accountable with. What happens when we teach a generation that they are masters of their own universe with no sin, with no consequence, that we are all a product of primordial goop that took millions of years to evolve into our superior uh, uh, homo sapien state, that we are just all a part of the animal kingdom, something scary happens, usually tyranny, genocide, and war. We need to preach on sin. When done right, Preaching on sin, talking about it, is actually empowering. It usually is the opposite of what we expect. Because when we talk about that, we're reminded that we cannot get ourselves out of sin. We are in desperate need of some third party. And that's Jesus. That we are utterly tarnished. And there's nothing that we can do to make it better. It reminds us that we are completely dependent on Jesus and his work. To live a life of victory free from the bondage of sin. God hates sin. And as Christians, we have to hate it too. I know as Christians, we try not to talk about hate too much because we think that anger and hate is wrong, but I think that there's a righteous hate. And we have to hate our sins. I want to open up Genesis. I want to encourage you to do that too. Genesis chapter 3, and talk about how sin was introduced to Adam and Eve. Okay, chapter 3. So at this point, Adam and Eve are relaxing in their beautiful oasis, this perfect relationship with God, nothing to hinder it. And you can only use your imagination to figure out how beautiful it actually was there. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord gave, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from the other tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the, uh, from, we, sorry, we may eat of the fruit and the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in, um, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you Eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was with her the whole time. 
And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That would have been an awkward experience. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As a natural uh, um, response to discovering that you've been naked the whole time. So, Satan does pretty much three things here. He's an incredible salesman, okay? It's not like he had to do, you know, uh, something that was a beautiful tree. It had beautiful fruit. But the first thing he does is he, he questions um, what, what God meant. He said, are you sure that God said that? And then immediately following that, he said, he, he called God a liar. Nah, God didn't mean that. And then he made an outrageous claim. He said, actually, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. And, uh, and so as she's thinking, and, and as Adam is doing nothing, she's looking at the tree. It's beautiful. The, the fruit, I mean, we can use that to eat. It's what's wrong with eating. And it'll make me wise. I'll be able to worship God better. You know, all those three things were not bad. But it was the fact that she's disobeying God that she ate of it. And sin entered into our DNA. So many people in the world paint God, uh, the God of the Old Testament, with, with this fierce uh, judgment. You know, he's about rules, laws, and punishment. And that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, love, and forgiveness. But the thing is, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. Now, I want to read a bit from Jeremiah, okay? Because I believe that this is a beautiful depiction of what God thinks of sin. Jeremiah chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go there. If not, you get to listen to my soothing voice as I go through it. Chapter 2. Verses, we're going to start from 2, and we're going to go to verse 9, okay? Now, God is speaking to his people, Israel, okay? They're sinning. So, this is how God reacts. Chapter 2. Um, chapter 2, verse 2. Go and proclaim the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown, Think of, think of how God is talking here. He's not saying, I can't believe you did that to me. He's saying, hey, do you, do you remember that one time when you were younger and, and, and we were in love and, and you would follow me into the wilderness and, and I took care of you and we, we got really tight? God is a sentimental, romantic God. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless, worthlessness and became worthless? You know, what, what like, I, I did everything for you. What did, your, what did you guys chase after that seemed so much better than what I had for you, God is saying here. They did not say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of uh, deserts and pits, in a land of uh, drought and, and deep uh, darkness, in a land of that none passes, though, uh, 
passes through where no man dwells. <clears throat> and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after the things not, uh, that do not profit. They went after the things that were not real. Just like all the things that, that Satan was talking about was not real. They fell into the exact same trap that Satan had uh, uh, pulled on uh, Adam and Eve and the same thing that he's doing to us today. I'm going to need a volunteer for my next segment here. Don't worry, it's not going to be a magic trick. My, my illusion career is done. Um, John, could I? Okay, I'm going to explain something to you here, okay? I'm not going to show you. Well, you can stay right there. I'm going to show you my wallet. And... Um, do you have money in your wallet? Okay, you do. Um, there's something incredibly valuable in my wallet. Would you be willing to give me everything in your wallet for what I have in mind? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'm going to tell you right now, it'll be worth way more than what you have in your wallet. I, I promise. Yeah? Okay. Give me your money, and then I will... I actually have nothing in my wallet. <clears throat> and that is exactly what Satan does. My wallet is completely empty. Thank you, John. <laughs> Normally, I would give this back to you, but that would defeat the whole purpose of what I'm doing here this morning. It just, because Satan never gives back, right? Not that I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I think by the second service, I'll be able to take my wife out for a Mother's Day. <laughs> and that is exactly what Satan does. He makes a promise. He makes a claim. He says, oh, yeah, you're, you're living a good life. And he says, yeah, you, we are living a good life. You know, we got this, we got that. And, and Satan is like, well, hey, did you know the grass is greener on the other side? Did you know that if you do this, this is what's going to happen? And we're like, is this true? And we take his word for it. Yeah. You know, we are very blessed people in Canada. You know, when you go on mission trips and you go to other parts of the world, you begin to believe how incredibly blessed we are. Not just spiritually, but, but financially. And isn't it funny that so many of us are so stuck on getting more, more and more. And we invest everything we have in getting more. And Satan is constantly just distracting us and bringing us to that place. Now, if you uh, go further into Jeremiah, he has a, uh, a good response to what, how we should react to sin. In chapter uh, 2, verse 12, it says, Be appalled, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. You should be completely offended by the sin that separates us from God. That is the appropriate response. But so many of us say, wow, that's, that's bad. Oh, well, I don't see any uh, 
harm right away. Might as well, you know, claim God's grace later on. And then later on, it, it, uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. It says, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my, uh, call, call me my father and would not turn from, from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband. And so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. This is how God feels about us following sin. It's as if as a wife cheats on her husband. This is how betrayed he feels when, when, we, um, when, we, when we follow sin. We're supposed to be appalled by it. In verse 13, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. Right after, in chapter 2, verse te- uh, 13, God says that there are two evils that we're committing when we go and we follow our sin. Okay? There's two evils. One, we have fors- he says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay? So basically, God is saying, do you understand what I have given you? I have given you fountains of water. Now, now don't just see like a little, little geyser shooting up some water every two minutes. Like when I, when I was reading this, immediately I was brought back to a mission trip that I took in Paraguay uh, to a place we, we visited called Iguazu Falls, the most beautiful place in the world. You think Niagara Falls is cool. This place has like about 150 to 300 waterfalls. It is absolutely amazing to go here. So when I read this verse, God is saying, this is what I'm giving you. This is what I have for you. And and instead of this, you know, Satan is like, hey, you know, there's better water over here. Okay, better than this. And it's handmade cisterns. If, If you haven't grown up on the farm, if you don't know what that is, a cistern is a tank for storing water, especially one supplying taps or a part of a flushing toilet. And that cistern has holes in it. So no matter how much water you go in, it, it seeps out anyway. That is how sin reacts. Why in the world would you want to go to a cistern when you have this? God wants, God desires for you to have such a tight-knit, close relationship with him that you, that, that you would call him his dad. And in some places in the Old Testament, it actually says Abba, which is Hebrew for, for dada. You know, very close, tight-knit terms. Israel kept thinking to itself that there's something better. There's always something better. There's something better. Kept chasing the mirage, but only found emptiness. And that's exactly where sin leads you. We went through a lot of information this morning. Amidst all of that information, amidst all those names, quotes, pictures, I want you to ask yourself, to ask God this morning to examine your heart. This is what it comes down to. To examine your heart this morning. It's going to mean you're going to have to make yourself a little bit vulnerable, and that's okay. 
I'm not going to ask you to come up and, and do an altar call, but I'm going to ask you to make yourself vulnerable to God this morning, okay? And let God point out the sin in your life. We know that sin is wrong. You know, I can preach about that all day, and we can go through why it is wrong or where it came from, that it's a rebellion, that people, but, but I believe that there are people this morning who have grown so numb to certain sins in their lives that they don't even think that it's a big deal anymore, and they've just kind of like shrugged it off. They've chosen the man-made leaky cisterns over waterfalls of life. We can all conclude, hopefully, this morning that sin is not God's will for your life. But, but do you hate your sin? Are you appalled by the sin that is in your life? I think if we understood the whole ramification of sin, that we would have become, uh, that in the comfort that we have in it, that we don't think it's a big deal, we would think completely differently if we understood the long-term effects. Just like if I was to go up to John, hey John, I've got an empty wallet. Can you give me all your money for the empty wallet? He's like, um, let me think about that. No, of course not. If you go up to someone, hey, I got a leaky cistern here. Would you want that in order, uh, uh, instead of going to see the Iguazu Falls? Hmm, no, of course not. There's always a promise of something better. Sin destroys you. That is its only purpose. And I think that as Christians, we need to understand that especially in a comfortable country like this, we are susceptible to numbness, complacency, and lukewarmness. And we need to, we need to sift, uh, sift that out of us. We need to use scripture to do that. I came across this really cool poem that really affected me when I thought about how serious sin is. And it, it was done in 1846 by a, a, a girl, her name is um, Emily Bront. This is what it says. It's called The Prisoner. Intense is the agony when the eye begins to see, when the ear begins to hear, when the pulse begins to pound, when the heart begins to throb, when the soul feels its flesh, and when the flesh feels its chains. I think that some of us are in chains here this morning, and we've just grown quite comfortable with it. I'm watching a series right now with my wife called uh, White Collar, and uh, it, it has to do with a white-collar FBI agent teaming up with a criminal informant, and they become very close friends. And um, it's interesting how the, co uh, the relationship acts out but the criminal informant has to wear an ankle bracelet. And throughout the whole series, he's reminded over and over and over again that no matter where he goes or what he does, he will always be a prisoner. Even though he gets to be in New York, he has a two-mile radius and he can never go past that. There are some of us this morning who have a radius. We have an ankle bracelet. And there's some of us who have probably even grown attached to it. But it is a bondage God does not want for your life, and it's a bondage that will be used to destroy you. Do you feel agony for your sin? Do you understand what it took for Jesus to pay that debt? There are people here this morning that aren't growing in their spiritual walk with God, 
There are people here that, that aren't growing in their faith. They're losing motivation to read scripture. They don't feel like praying anymore. And a lot of that probably has to do because there is sin lurking in your life that you need to deal with. But I want you to know this morning that we serve a God of love and of grace. And your victory and the victory that, that Jesus Christ won, that very person with that grace and that love is here, present, this morning. And he's in the business of releasing you from chains. And you need to know that. He's here this morning. Jesus took your place and my place on spiritual death row. We were on death row. We had the bright orange jumpsuits. Jesus switched the jumpsuits. He wore the, the handcuffs. He walked past the bars. He went into the room where they did the electric chair. And he died in your place where you got to walk out of that prison for your sin. He experienced the agony of spiritual, emotional, and physical death. And then three days later, he devoured it. He took your sin, and he obliterated it. He humiliated it, and he vaporized it. It no longer exists. He replaced your sin with his victory. That is real. That is absolute truth. Irrefutably. And God is asking you this morning, do you believe that? If you do, nothing can stand in the way of you in, in, in that victory. You're no longer a slave. That The ankle uh, device is off. The chains are broken. You are free in Christ. Sin no longer has a bearing on you. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is a powerful truth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that your glory your infamy, your love has replaced that sin in our lives. God, right now I want to pray for the people in this congregation that still are living in the bondage that sin has placed on them. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would release the fountains of goodness, of eternal joy and fulfillment and purpose. I pray that you would cover them with that. And Lord, I, I pray that those people would, would uh, submit those sins to you, repent of their sins, speak to somebody about it, and experience the joy of freedom. Thank you so much for who you are and what you did for us. pray these things in your holy, precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand with